All right, we're going to do a do-over, just like playing kick the can in the front yard, okay? All right, do-over. My name's Dave. I'm glad I get to be with you. And I just wanted to say, I, I was saying earlier, man, it's weird that we're all stuck at home, but we're thankful that we get to share this with you through the interwebs. So we're excited to study the Bible together. We believe the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So a lot of us as modern people are very skeptical of organized religion, um, but we know there's something incredibly significant about Jesus. We want to get to know Jesus and his earliest followers. We do that by studying their words, their documents. We're in 1 Corinthians, one of the first New Testament letters written to followers of Jesus in the city of Corinth, which was a crazy city, had all kinds of issues, possibly the most dysfunctional church in the first century. So that's helpful for us because we are modern dysfunctional people. The series that we're working through right now is called True Unity. And in this series, we're studying 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. The major issue that Paul is dealing with is unity versus divisions. Are we the kind of people that quarrel and divide into different tribes? Or are we a people who are completely unified? What Paul's going to argue is that division is a major human problem, just like it is in our day, but the solution is found in Jesus and in his church. And so we want to unpack that this week. This week, we're calling it Division Hides the Cross. Division Hides the Cross. And so what Paul's going to argue is that their behavior is actually confusing outsiders about who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross, but it's also confusing us. The, the more we veil the cross, the less we understand who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. So one of the ways that I think this can be illustrated is in a drive to a modern airport. Any of you at home ever driven someone to the airport, gone to pick someone up from the airport? Airports sometimes can have great signage that's very clear, that's very unified, and you know exactly where you're going. And many of them do. Uh, I actually have family that grew up, uh, growing up, my family was in Washington, D.C. and in New York City. So I've traveled to a lot of different big cities with different signage. I've traveled to a lot of different airports with different signage. And you learn to really appreciate well-done, unified signage that shows you where you're trying to go. Well, just a year or two ago, the Austin airport was redoing everything. And normally a very clear, unified message. You can follow the signs. You can get where you want to go. It's not a real big airport, easy to follow. But like I said, this was a year or two ago. I went and I was just baffled. The, the signs were divided. They were saying different things. They were, they were speaking competing messages. And I found myself driving around the entire airport about three times before I was finally able to figure out the right place to go. And I use that as a illustration, because I think that's the kind of thing we've often encountered, right? You're going somewhere and you get competing messages. This sign says, follow me. This sign says, follow me this way. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. And often that's what we do in our lives. We say, do it my way. My way is the best. And someone else is like, no, 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 you're stupid. Do it my way, right? And we have these competing messages. Our division confuses people about the truth. And so Paul says, hey, Corinthian church, your division is hiding the cross. The cross is the ultimate message about what God has done for us. The cross is this message that God was willing to suffer for us. He was willing to enter into our pain and come after us because of his great love. And so we can't save ourselves by our divisions, by our political parties, by our methods, by our cultures. We need God to come in from the outside and save us. And he did that through the cross. So let's read together 1 Corinthians. We're in verses 
10 through 25. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 10 through 25. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let me pray and ask God to teach us by his word this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us as people are dispersed in different homes, watching on different devices. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would apply the truth of this message through the foolishness of proclaiming it, that your spirit would sink it home to our hearts. God, help us not to divide, help us not to hide the message of the cross, but help us to glory in it. Help us to, to boast in a God who would sacrifice for us. We thank you for that. Open our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So division hides the cross. They had a problem, division. They were not unified. He's calling them to be unified in Christ, in what Christ has done for them, which is summarized by the cross. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins as a sacrifice. There's this ancient sacrificial system that taught, that symbolized that a sacrifice needed to be made, that a price needed to be paid to cover our sins. And Jesus comes along as the perfect God-man who finally loves people and obeys God and does everything that people are supposed to do, and yet then dies as a substitute, steps in and takes our place on the cross. And so the cross summarizes everything he did. In 1 Corinthians 15, later on, we preached that on Easter, later on in this letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to summarize and say, this message is of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He's a substitute for our sins. It was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he had conquered sin and death once and for all. So when we talk about the cross, hiding the cross, magnifying the cross, we're talking about that message, that truth of a God who would come to save us. And so we're going to see two major ways that we get sidetracked from the cross, its methods, 
and culture. And so, yes, if you've been with Grace Bible Church long, you might be completely confused. Yes, I'm only going to do a two-point sermon today, but who knows? Maybe I could go for two hours anyway, okay? We'll see. We'll see what happens. But just two major points. We want to put the cross before methods, before our preferred methods, and we want to put the cross before our culture. Now, I'm very purposefully being careful about my words. I, I talked and prayed through this for a long time. It's not cross instead of methods. It's not cross instead of culture. We all have methods. That's cool. We all have culture. That's awesome. But we have to put the cross first. And that's the argument that Paul is going to be making in this text. So the first thing I want us to see in verses 10 through 17 is that we need to put the cross before methods. Put the cross before our methods. We all have preferred methods. We all have ways of doing things, but we always have to be realigning and saying the cross is most important. So again, in verse 10, we get the problem. We get the setup in verse 10. It says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what unites us as believers in Christ. We're united in Christ. And he's saying, I appeal to you that you all agree that there be agreement, not division, but agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That word united can also be translated as mended, a coming back together. So the children's story that my wife read earlier talks about how, yeah, all people are divided because of our sin. And so what the cross does is the cross says, yeah, we find humanity divided. That's just how it is, but we're mended together because we realize we all universally have the same problem. So your problem is, is not that you're just not like me. That's not really your problem. Your problem is the same problem I have. And that's what unifies us together. We have the same problem of rebelling against God. And so Jesus taking the payment for that rebellion, taking it for us on the cross is what mends us back together. He loves us. And so because he first loved us, then now we're going to begin learning to love one another. He says in verse 11, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, fighting, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Uh, that word divided can be translated as like chopped up. So this is kind of, this is kind of gross in a way, right? Like, is, is Jesus chopped up for you? No, of course not. And then he goes on and says, was Paul crucified for you? The answer is, of course not. Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? It's like, you weren't baptized in the name of Paul. You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We come under the name and the power of God, of Jesus, of what he's done for us through the cross. And then he goes off on what seems like a tangent, but it's really important to this main point, that the cross comes before methods. He says here, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. So he's saying, okay, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you because that could add to the problem. You could be saying, well, I'm superior to you because I was baptized by Paul. And then in verse 16, this is really interesting. He says, oh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. So Paul is modeling Baptism comes second to the cross, to faith in the good news of Jesus Christ, dying for us, rising again. He's able to separate methods, steps, discipleship, next things. He's able to separate that out from the gospel. Verse 17, he says it this way, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So two things right there. He says, God sent me to preach the cross. He made me all about the cross. Now, the rest of 1 Corinthians, he's about a bunch of other things too. He's saying it all comes from the cross. It all stems from the cross. The cross is most important, right? He says, God didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the cross. Well, did he baptize? Yeah, he baptized some people. So again, he's not saying cross and no methods. He's not saying cross and nothing else. He's saying the cross comes first. It's the foundation. It's the doorway. It's, it's what everything else is built upon. He also contrasts the preaching of the cross, the preaching of this message of truth with words of eloquent wisdom. Now, Paul, if you analyze it, I, I was actually a communication or rhetoric major in college. You can analyze the speeches that Paul gave that are written down for us. He used eloquent wisdom. What he's contrasting is the manipulation of eloquent wisdom. It's kind of like how we might say in today's day and age, um, I'm not all about marketing, man, but if you own a business, you do some basic marketing, right? But when you're saying, I'm not all into all that marketing, you're kind of saying, well, I don't want to manipulate people. I just want to sell a good product and tell people about it. And that's kind of what Paul is saying. He uses some of the skills of marketing. He uses some of the skills of communication, eloquent wisdom. He uses some of those skills. He's well-trained and he communicates very well. He's saying, I'm not relying on that. And when you rely on that, when you rely on methods, when you rely on these secondary things, they can get out of alignment. You got to always be putting the cross first. So the problem was they were fighting and then that was forming in them saying, well, I'm on Paul's team. Well, I'm on Apollos' team. He was another preacher you'll read about in the book of Acts. Well, I'm on Cephas' team. That was Peter's other name. Peter's team, right? And even some say, I'm of Christ. Now here's where this gets a little weird. If you're a Bible student and you're reading this in a really hard wooden sense, you can be really confused by this verse because you're like, isn't it good to be of Christ? Yes, of course. It's not like it's a sin to say, I am of Christ or I follow Christ. Yes, we follow Christ. We're Christ followers. What he's saying is that becomes a part of the factionalism and the quarreling. Anything we say, even if it's the right thing to say, I follow Christ, or even in reality, it's okay to follow a leader. It's okay to follow Cephas or Paul or Apollos. That's what disciples do. They follow their teachers. It's okay to follow people. What he's saying is in the context of the quarreling and the fighting and believing then that this is what makes me better than you over there. You're the bad people. I follow Paul. You're the dumb Apollos people. You're the dumb Peter followers, right? And so Paul is saying, we shouldn't be fighting. We shouldn't be quarreling. We've got to understand how to separate the methods, the secondary issues from the cross itself, from the essentials of the gospel, the good news message of Jesus coming for us. So I found a picture of a family cooking together. Um, So this family, they're beautiful models in a perfect, beautiful kitchen, and they're all happy as they cook together. This is probably just what the quarantine is like for you, right? Beautiful models, beautiful kitchen. Everybody's happy. Everybody's getting along. Um, I, I'm being a little sarcastic. Probably it's not that perfect, but there can be great times had in the kitchen together and great things you can learn together. And one of my favorite stories of kind of a meaningless tradition or a meaningless method is the story about a girl who was watching her mom cook a pot roast. And she was riding down the steps because her mom just kind of did it by watching grandma. And she would cut the roast. And the girl would ask her mom, mom, why do you cut the roast like that? And she's like, well, I'm just 
doing what your grandma did. And so later on, the little girl was able to ask grandma about cutting the roast. And grandma said, well, my, my roast pan was only this big and most roasts are this big. So I always had to cut the roast to fit it into my roast pan. And so that's just a funny little story about how we often carry on traditions. We often carry on methods, not really understanding where they came from. I want to deputize you right now as a follower of Christ and say, you're a follower of Jesus. It's your job to start thinking like a missionary. You're taking the gospel into your family, into your workplace, into your city, into new places, and you've got to always be doing the hard work of separating it out. What's essential? What's just the gospel? And what are the methods that I'm just, I keep on doing because everybody else did them before me? or maybe because it's my preference. Uh, One of my mentors who passed away a few months ago, he used to say that when he was pastoring a church, he noticed that whatever ministry method helped someone grow in their faith, that became the ministry method that they really wanted this church to take hold of and run with, right? And so he was always trying to affirm the methods that had helped people to grow. That's a great method, and maybe we can do some of that here, but it's not the only way to do things, right? And that's the kind of homework we have to do in our own heart. Okay, what's the method that you're really excited about that you might lean into thinking this is the only way to do it and the people that don't do it or don't recognize it, they're stupid, right? That's where you begin to lean into factionalism or divisions. Paul's saying we always got to put the cross first, the methods are second. Does this mean it's wrong to have methods? No. Does it mean it's wrong to have culture? Is it wrong to have preferences? Is it wrong to have traditions? No, all those things are fine. We just have to always hold them loosely. We always have to hold them not as tightly as we hold onto the message of the cross itself. And so that's what Paul is trying to teach us here. A case study for us as a church, it's been operating for about 14 years now, is music. Man, music is highly personal. And there's this funny thing that happens where we argue about our music preference as if it's rational, right? As if our preference is better than the other person's preference. And our Are there debatable things in music? Yeah, of course. There are some things that are better than others. But just know the human heart has an incredible ability to rationalize our own preferences, okay? So be very, very careful about it. So when Chris and I over the last 14 years have been kind of trying to lead our church and worship through music, here are some of the things that we've shot for. This is just kind of a a random list. There are other ways that this could be described, but this is a short summary of what we've shot for and trying to keep the cross central. We've tried to do music that is biblical, right? That's hard to find music to sing together that's biblical. So we've looked for music that's biblical. We've tried to look for music that is emotionally honest, that actually connects with real human beings and is emotionally honest like the Psalms are in the Bible. We tried to find music that is congregational. That means Uh, it can be sung by a group, right? There's plenty of music out there that's awesome that we all enjoy, um, but it's not necessarily singable by a group. We've tried to find music that's doable by our band, right? There's music that might be singable by a group, but it's really musically complex and hard to pull off by the band. Um, So stuff that our band can pull off. We've tried to also do mostly new music so it can be understood by everyday people, but also mix in tradition and kind of honor ancient music and great classics as well. And then we've also shot for being culturally diverse. Now, if you listen to that list of five or six things I just threw out there, you'll recognize pretty quickly that's an almost impossible mix, right? Like that's kind of impossible to accomplish. But I just want you to know that we've put tons of prayer and thought into this, but we often in the last 14 years have had people tell us, 
we're stupid and we're doing the wrong thing. And we've had people tell us that from multiple different directions. It's too fast. It's too slow. It's too loud. It's too um, quiet. It's too old. It's too new. Uh, it's too this culture. It's too that culture. We're working on it. I just want you to know we're, we're working on it, but we're trying to put the cross central and that's the goal. And so it's an ongoing process and it's really interesting. Chris and I were joking about this the other day. It's to the point now where both of us aren't even sure what our preferences are anymore, right? Because <laughs> we've tried so hard to combine all these other issues to serve the church. We're not even sure what our personal preferences are anymore because we've been setting those aside. I would love for you to get to that place uh, when it comes to separating the cross and methods where you're not even sure what your favorite methods are anymore, but you're sure of the cross. You're not even really sure what your tradition or your culture, you're, you're kind of fuzzy on that. Like there might be things you celebrate and you enjoy, but really what you're sure of is the cross. And I want to be careful. I don't want to, I don't want to put down preferences. Uh, we want to celebrate them. We want to thank God for them. If you have a tradition you grew up with or a culture you grew up with that you really enjoy a lot of things, from, let's celebrate it and give God thanks for that. But always be putting the cross before that. And so here's, here's practically what this looks like for us. Okay, two steps. Step one, clarify what the message of the cross is. What is the message of the cross? Here's some key passages that you should write down that'll help you to memorize this. Romans 6.23. It's a great passage that gets the the positive and negative. It's got grace versus earning. Um, It's got kind of a nice package of what the cross accomplished. The word cross is not in that verse, but what Jesus did on the cross for us. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It kind of gets the both sides of it in a nice, beautiful package. John 3.16 is a famous one as well, right? This whole idea that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life, everlasting life. John 3.16, another great verse. It summarizes the message of the cross. And then in context with what we're studying in 1 Corinthians Later on in 1 Corinthians 15, he has a great summary in the first 10 to 20 verses where he talks about this is the message that Jesus died for us according to the scriptures. He raised from the dead. He he summarizes that for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So those are some key passages you can go to to clarify the cross, to memorize the message of the cross, to tell it to yourself, and then begin learning to separate it from what your methods are. And just by way of analysis, how do you separate it from your methods? Well, think about what kind of church did you grow up in? Or did you not grow up in a church at all? What was the culture of your family? What kind of traditions or not practicing of traditions did your family of origin practice? Uh, What are your preferences? What's your personality? What are your gifts? And begin to separate that out. Paul's going to talk about this a lot later on in 1 Corinthians 12. We all have different gifts. We all have different things that we focus on. We all have different things that we fixate on. Begin saying and learning what those are in your own life and your own history so that you can say, thank you, Jesus, for those. Thank you for my gifts, my temperament, my uniqueness, my quirkiness. And then you can also say, but I recognize those are not the same thing as the message of the cross. And as you do that missionary work of separating those things out, then you'll be able to meet other people where they are. Then you'll be able to appreciate their gifts. Other people have different gifts. See them affirm them, bless them in their different gifts. Begin serving those. This is the last application flowing out of that. Serve people with different gifts. Work beside them, and that'll help you to bless 
and affirm those gifts. Okay, cross before methods. This next section, it's cross before culture. Cross before culture, we'll see it in verses 18 through 25. And so he's really going to continue with the same conceptual framework, okay? This all goes together. It's very similar and kind of bleeds over with cross before methods. But he talks in big generalities about Jews and Greeks, okay? So he's talking in big generalities. And yes, Paul is smart enough to know that not every Jew is this way and not every Greek is this way. He's just saying there are general cultural preferences that we can have. And again, we're a melting pot nation. So we, I think it's helpful to just recognize, well, what were the preferences of my family, right? Or what were the preferences of my high school or just the gang of friends that I ran with growing up, right? What were the preferences of that little maybe mini culture? Because we're such a melting pot, it can be hard to boil it down to Jews and Greeks. Those are pretty big categories. So let's look at verses 18 through 25. Starting in verse 18, he says, for the word of the cross or the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The cross is humbling. It's ironic. It takes the powerful and says, your power is not enough. You need God who gave up his power for you. Verse 20, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Now he's going to use some parallels here. Signs is a parallel to power. So Jews want signs and power, miraculous displays of God moving. So Jews want signs and Greeks seek wisdom wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, where Gentiles means all the other nations. And so what, what he's doing here in this argument, he's taking Greek culture, which was still the kind of majority culture of the Roman empire, even though you can ethnically separate Roman from Greek. He's just saying Greek is a stand-in for the majority culture of that day in the Roman empire. And he's saying Greek culture is going to stand in for all the other nations. And then he's also talking about Jews because in the modern or in the first century church, they were trying to figure out how to get Jewish Christians to get along with non-Jewish Christians. So those were the two major divisions. So Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It's a scandal to Jews and it seems foolish to non-Jews. Verse 24, but to those who are called, to those who are called, we talked about this last week, we need to call out to God, but when we finally call out to God to help us, we realize he's been calling us the whole time. So scripture calls, uh, talks about this kind of calling that we might call it effectual calling. That's a theological way of describing it. It's the idea that God is calling you and you've got to answer the phone. You can't resist And so it says, for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he's saying, let me summarize. Every culture has something they aspire to, right? He's saying, in generalities, Jews are all about power and signs. And Greeks are all about wisdom and what sounds really smart. And he's saying, both of those pale in comparison to true power in the cross, and true wisdom in the cross. And the cross, here's the irony, 
seems ultimately weak and seems ultimately foolish. But that's where the real power and wisdom is. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so what Paul is saying here is we've got to give up our cultural saviors, our cultural idols and recognize that only God can save me. And the method that God chose is this ironic, weak method of the cross, of humbling himself, of giving up all power and perfection as Philippians talks about. He had this perfect union with God and Christ gave that up to come down and enter in as a poor peasant to be humbled in human birth and to to live a perfect life, to love people the way that we were supposed to love, but we never do, to always do what's right the way we never do, to stand for justice, to care for people, and then to die a sacrificial death. And that is our message of salvation. That is our only hope. So again, how can we apply this in our own culture? The idea is not that we throw away our culture and say, I hate my culture. The idea is that we line up everything underneath the cross. We say the cross comes first. So maybe there are some cultural values that I was taught that are good and true and beautiful in a biblical sense, but the cross is my ultimate salvation. What the cross does also though, is it relativizes all cultures. It's a really beautiful thing. The cross being our ultimate source of power means, okay, my culture doesn't have to be perfect for me to appreciate it. Do you see that? That's one of the beautiful things about this. I can now look at my culture and go, oh, there's some things that are awesome about my culture and there are some things that are terrible. So I can appreciate the good things but recognize that my culture is not my only hope. You see, if your culture is your only hope, you fall into this dishonest sort of defending of your culture. And let me back up a little bit. The same thing can happen to modern people who don't believe in group culture anymore. We only believe in the culture of our one true authentic self. That's really where our culture is going right now, right? To say, my individual culture is all that matters. I got to be true to me. And what happens is when you look at your own soul for salvation, when you look at your own true self to be the culture that saves you, you either have to lie or be in despair because it's not enough to save. Only the cross can truly save us. So again, what's What's the true culture of self you've been looking to? What's the culture maybe you were raised with? It might be a friend culture. It might be a educational culture. It might be your vocation, right? You're like, well, this is who I am. I, I am a soldier or I am a teacher, right? Or I am this kind of person from this kind of place. Where are you putting your trust? The gospel, the good news of Jesus calls us to place our trust on Jesus and what he did for us by dying for us on a cross. And again, when we do that, then we can appreciate the good things from our culture. We can celebrate them. Um, it talks about power and wisdom as kind of the two big cultural values of the time, two competing cultural values of the time. I think wisdom is one in our culture that's really strong. We're all about education. I grabbed some pictures of graduates. We're seeing a lot of this online because sadly, a lot of graduates, college graduates and high school graduates, because of the virus right now, are not going to get to have their, their big normal ceremonies, which is really heartbreaking and really sad. Um, And so again, we want to affirm, man, graduation is good. Education is good. Wisdom is good. Learning is good. And Paul is never saying these things are evil. He's saying they're not enough to save us. They're not enough to save us. And so what we want to understand is that the cross comes first. So again, what are the things that you think might be saving you? 
and what can really save you. Only Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus in his final prayer with his disciples, you can find this in John chapter 17. He prays that his future followers will be united. And so this ties in with the original big idea of this sermon, that division hides the cross. Jesus says in John chapter 17, when different kinds of people follow Jesus and they're unified, that actually helps people see who Jesus is. He says this really strongly in John 17, verses 21 through 26. He has this language that the world will know, the world will see, the world will understand the love that the Father has for the Son and the love that the Son has for his people when his people are united. So what are practical ways that we can be united and no longer divided? Because that will point a watching world to the gospel. Now, first of all, I just want to say Grace Bible Church, regular folks, I know a lot of other folks are watching. We're glad you're watching, but, but regular members of Grace Bible Church, you do this so well. We are a multicultural, multi-method church that's united around the cross. So God bless you and thank you. Thank you for putting the cross central. Thank you for loving people first and placing your methods and your cultural preferences second. You do that so well but we all can get better at it, right? So I wanna give you three biblical words that I think are beautiful biblical words, which are ways that we can honor other cultures and honor other methods to apply what Paul is talking about, to be practically united instead of divided. And when we apply these three words in our lives, people will see more of Jesus and less of us. Here are the three biblical words, three New Testament words, compassion, hospitality, and patience. Three beautiful words, compassion, hospitality, and patience. Interestingly enough, they're all words that are compound words in the Greek that have a kind of more concrete literal meaning in the original Greek than as we translate them in English. So compassion is literally your guts being moved towards someone else's pain. It's the moving of your guts. It's that feeling you have when you see someone else hurting. Do you allow yourself to do that? I know some of you have put up big walls so that you don't hurt so much because the world is so full of hurt. I wanna wanna make the appeal to you that if you know the God of the universe hurt for you and bridged that gap and gave himself to love you first, that's gonna open up your ability to be more willing to suffer and hurt for others. Throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus was moved with compassion. He ached for people's pain. I think that's step one to loving other cultures, to loving other methods and putting the cross first and not being divided, but being unified. Compassion, that our guts would be moved towards other people. We would hear their story and hurt with them. That is something that can only really truly be done well in the gospel. Some people are naturally gifted at that. Most of us are not. The gospel teaches us to do that. The second New Testament word is hospitality. It's literally compound phrase of loving outsiders. And so it's something we are just commanded to do. We're commanded to love outsiders. Now we typically think of hospitality as having someone over for a meal. In the first century, it might've been having someone over for a meal and letting them stay the night with you because there weren't as many hotels back then, right? Um, But it just simply, in its most literal sense, means loving outsiders. Loving outsiders. When you recognize that because of your selfishness and sin and rebellion, you were an outsider to God, but he loved you anyway, that frees up your heart to be able to take tangible steps of loving an outsider. 
And again, be careful. I know a lot of you watching and listening, you're guilty conscience people, and you're like, I have to love every outsider all the time perfectly. No, just, just say, God, show me one outsider. <laughs> What's one practical step I can take to love one outsider? Just to show some grace. Maybe it's writing a note. Maybe it's acknowledging them, praying for them, encouraging them. And the last word is patience. Y'all have heard me talk about this before. Um, the King James translation of patience is long-suffering, which is the literal compound Greek phrase. We suffer long with each other. That's what Paul is calling the Corinthian church to, and that's what he's calling us to. Again, knowing that God is patient with us. He's long-suffering with us. He gave himself for us. He came after us in love. That's going to free up our hearts to be more patient, to be long-suffering with others. Again, don't run to the extreme. Does that mean I have to put up with everybody's junk all the time? Never say no, never set boundaries. No, it's okay to say no to people, right? It's okay to say no to people. It's okay to set boundaries. But what's one practical step you could take in the name of the cross to show long-suffering with someone that God's placed near you? Just think of one person and one step you can take. Not, I've got to perfectly put up with them forever and never speak back to anything they ever do. No, sometimes in loving them, you need to say, hey, that's a problem, right? Sometimes you need to speak up. What's a practical step of learning to be patient and long-suffering? You can take, and as we do these things, as we practice these three New Testament words of compassion, hospitality, and patience, we will grow. We're already a church that is diverse. We're already a church whose unity helps people to see Jesus instead of our preferences, but we'll get better at it, and more people will see Jesus. More people will see the cross. So, I want to finish up by thinking again about the, the road signs, whether it's a big city or an airport, you go in, you're getting lost, you're getting overwhelmed. I can remember one time flying through the London airport and my whole family was like terrified because people were just barking orders saying, stand in this line, stand in that line or queue or whatever they say in England. But they, they were kind of just barking orders and it was confusing and it's like multi-sensory and there's stuff everywhere. And that experience of being lost and confused and seeing too many messages that are divided and not united is often how we feel in our modern world. There's so many competing messages being thrown at us all the time. I want to encourage you that, yes, you want to take steps to focus on what's really important, but here's what's so beautiful about the cross. Paul's going to unpack this more and more as as we move through 1 Corinthians, these first four chapters. What's so beautiful about the cross is it's not just a message that we need to discipline ourselves to put first, but the cross is also a message that shows us that God invaded our life. He didn't wait for us to put him first, and then he stepped in. We're told in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God doesn't wait for you to have the right discipline, to set aside the competing messages and listen to the right message. No, God breaks in. He finds you at the Heathrow Airport in London. He grabs a hold of you and he says, we're gonna do this together. We're gonna move towards real home. I've got you. And if you see God more and more that way, he loves you. He's proved that through the cross. That means he's calling you and it is time for you to answer the phone whether you're a longtime believer to answer the phone and say, yes, Lord, I trust you. So I'm gonna love others because you've loved me first. Or for the first time, maybe right where you are, just say, God, I've never realized, I never understood how good and gracious and kind you were, but now I finally hear you calling out to me to trust you, that you love me, that you gave yourself for me. I invite you to make that prayer to God right now. Say, God, 
Come into my life. Forgive my sins. Grab hold of me. Help me make my way through this confusing city of different options, this confusing airport of not knowing where I'm going. Lord, help me by your cross to no longer be lost, but to be found. Help me find my way home and God will answer that prayer. Just call out to him. He'll be there with you. We would love to hear about that. If you're praying that prayer, if you're beginning to trust Jesus in a new way, let us know, email us or or reply on one of the streams. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to trust and walk with Jesus. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna sing a final song together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you gave yourself for us on the cross. We pray that you would teach us to trust you. The irony that the God who is the king of the universe would come and become a, a humble baby, a peasant in the first century world. And that he would be accused of crimes he didn't commit, that he would die a sacrificial death taking our place, but that death could not hold him. That he would rise again, that he would prove by his resurrection his unstoppable power, his victory over sin and death, his, his kingdom, his sovereignty, his lordship overall. God, help us to unite under Jesus, under the God who saves us by his cross. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name.